Lord Jesus, you are wise, you are holy, you are perfect in every way. Your beauty flows off the pages of Scripture as we consider the character of God as it rests in you, as we see the great wonder of your obedience, the great joy of your resurrection, as we see the horror of the cross and the greatness of your ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we ask that you would show us this morning by your Spirit how all that greatness, that glory, that beauty flows into this passage, that we might hear it, that we might receive it, and that we might apply it into our daily lives. Lord, would you make it so in our midst, we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me as we give honor to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Submitting to one another out of reverence or fear, maybe a better translation, of Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now, it would have been easy for me, and I just want to let you know this, to just to have left this passage and to just move right in to the rest of chapter 5 and in on to chapter 6. The problem is, is that we need to understand what verse 21 is saying to us so that then we get a real understanding of what's happening for the rest of this chapter. As we begin to think about this, I want us to look back at a few verses above that and remember what we learned and what we've been hearing about over the last week or so. That is the fact that the Holy Spirit comes and is poured out into the people of God and we're commanded as a result of that to be filled with the Spirit. And we talked about last week the fact that what the Spirit fills us up with is the reality of Christ. He brings Christ and all His benefits to believers. And we are to fill ourselves with the knowledge of Christ. Over and over and over again, we are to continue to know Christ, to know Him better, that we might love Him more, and that we might seek to live out what He has called us to in the power of the Spirit. And as we begin to think about that, I want us to think about what was being said to us there again so we start to put this into our heads. One of the things that we were called back into, if you remember, was fellowship. Now remember what happens in the Garden of Eden. Fellowship is broken. Adam and Eve turn on one another. The animal kingdom is turned on. And the ground is cursed. The relationship with God is broken. And fellowship is shattered. And what we see in these verses then is the reality that by the Spirit coming... We, once again, begin addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so fellowship begins to be restored, and the reality of fellowship, once again, is enabled. Not because we're just a bunch of good-hearted, nice people, but real, genuine, true fellowship requires the Spirit of God for it to take place. And we need to really believe that. The second thing that is completely required of, of the Spirit is for us to once again worship God, for this is what we were made for. But if we think that anyone can truly worship the living God without the Spirit, we are foolish in our thinking. 
And we need to once again be reminded that worship is something that the Spirit has to once again bring us back to. And what we see is that, in fact, the Holy Spirit has indeed done that. It brings us to a place where we make melody to the Lord with our hearts. The third thing we saw that it did last week was it changes a bad attitude to a good attitude, and that attitude is filled with thanksgiving. I won't, well, I will do it because my kids would be sad if I didn't. It changes us to an attitude of gratitude. There it is. That is a mantra at our house. Let's turn that frown upside down. Let's have an attitude of gratitude. And that's not just some quaint saying. What I want us to really think about is, is that it's only by the Spirit that our hearts are changed from people who always want to look at what's wrong to people who see that God is at work in our midst and are grateful. That the Creator made us for Himself. And that He has not let us go our own destructive way, but rather has sought us out, has brought us back into fellowship, has once again enabled us to worship Him, and has given us a heart full of gratitude and joy. And then there's that fourth thing that we're going to spend a little time talking about today. And that is the Spirit once again returns us to a submissive heart. Now, you know, we like those first three. They are really exciting, and we talk about it a lot. I mean, gratitude, thankfulness to God, praise and celebration, worshiping the Lord with gusto and might, fellowshipping, let's get the food going, get the crock pots flowing, and let's get together and have a great time. But what about submission? The Spirit actually brings us to a place where we, once again, want, desire, long to submit. And the question really for us this morning is, do we really, really, really believe it? And I would question, and I'm going to be this strong in my challenge today, that if you have a problem with submitting, then you do not really fellowship well, you do not really worship well, and you do not really have a heart of gratitude. That really what we get to at this point, submission is the key. If you are not a submitting person, you will not be a fellowshipping, worshiping, gratitude, thanksgiving person. You will be a person who's still clutching for your own way, for your own stuff. And you find your heart is bound up with you and not with the Lord. Now, the first thing I want to do is, and I need to address this because it's only fair to do it, is that we need to look at the differing views of this verse. And the reason why we need to do that is because some men that I have great respect for, I disagree with. One of them being John Stott. And I love John Stott and usually find myself agreeing with him more often than not. But Stott and others tend to look at this passage. And one of the views that they, that they hold to here is that what this verse is saying is that we're supposed to submit or subject ourselves to one another. And they use that one another as the driving impetus. That we're supposed to have a relationship where we place ourselves under the service of one another, that we're serving this person and that person, and that we're all this equal group of people serving one another. Now, I will not tell you that that is not a premise that Scripture clearly calls us to serve one another. There's no question. But is that what this verse is calling us to? I don't think so. 
Another position that's held that tends to hold sway in this verse is the idea that Adam and Eve were co-equals in the garden. They were co-regents. They ruled over the garden together. And that sin brought about a need for God to place Adam over Eve. And as a result, headship, submission in that sense, begins to become this idea of this hierarchy is only because of sin. And now that Christ has come, well, of course we have great verses like Galatians, which remind us that there is neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither Scythian, barbarian, and they take those verses and they tend to run a theme that when we get to a verse like this, clearly what it's telling us is that we're all equals in every sense of that word, and we're supposed to submit ourselves to one another. Now, I want to say to you that I do not agree with that. I think that we, and I hope that by the time we're through, that we will come to understand and appreciate that clearly we see that there is an economy that God establishes in the garden, which is a reflection of the Trinity. And so if you undercut submission in the garden, you undercut, in some ways, the very God we worship. More on that in just a moment. Another view, and it's the view that I hold, is to, to let the word submit mean what it means. And what it means everywhere else in the New Testament is that it is someone who is less in authority submitting themselves under the authority of the one with whom they've been placed under. In some ways it's a military term. You know, when David Ferg shows up in Iraq, and this group of, this platoon of MPs shows up underneath him, things go awry if when David says, right face, head that direction, and everybody spreads out into five different directions. At some point, those men and women have to be willing to say, we submit ourselves under the leadership of, I believe he's Lieutenant. Is that right? Lieutenant Dave Fur. They have to be willing to do that. And that's the idea of this term is, is that it is something that the Spirit calls us to be people who submit to the authority that is placed over us. Because God placed it there. And so what I want you to begin to think about is that this isn't just something, this isn't just an attitude which wives are supposed to have. And that's what I feel like too often. We jump right into Ephesians 5 and it just becomes this this elbow gouging of, you know, wives going, yeah, you're supposed to love me like Christ. You know, I hadn't seen that very much. And husband's going, yeah, well, you might try listening to me occasionally instead of always telling me what to do. You know, that, that's unhelpful. Because at the, at the end of the day, what it really fosters is not a spirit that the Holy Spirit is bringing into our midst, but rather a spirit of self-serving. Yeah, listen to that. Yeah, you listen to that. What I want you to understand is the call of Christians is to submit to the authorities that God has placed over them, whatever those authorities are. And therefore, it is a context within the community is a submitting community. And I think that sense that men are trying to get at as they exegete this scripture are right in the sense that the community is to be a submitting community. Where I think they go awry is to say that it's mutual submission one to another. I think clearly what we see in this passage is a hierarchy being laid out. That there are those who are placed in authority who have responsibilities, and there are those who are placed in a subordinate role, and they have responsibilities. 
And it all relies and needs to be seen in relationship to Scripture and in relationship to the Trinity. Now, ultimately, as I said before, I wanted to come back to this. Ultimately, this all is rooted in the Trinity, and I want you to think about this. Does Scripture teach us that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in every way? They all share Godness. They all are equal in power, wisdom, goodness, holiness, truth. Sure, I'm not getting one, but that's okay. Those of you who know the Shorter Catechism better than me will, uh, will, will remember which one it is. But the whole point is, is that God is equal in every way in the sense of who He is in His being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we know this. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son submitted Himself to the Father. The Spirit was sent into the world by the Father and the Son. The Spirit submitted Himself to the Father and the Son. What we see there is an economy... In the, of the Trinity were equals in value and in substance submit themselves in an economy which works to the good of the glory of God. And so it should be shocking that when we show up in Genesis that we see an economy set up where there is a head and there is someone underneath that head and as they work together, what we see is, is the beauty and the glory of God, which the gospel has come to restore us back to. I'll leave that there, and we'll come now to looking at what is the call to submission. Here's what I want you to see, then. If it's rooted in God, then what I want you to begin to see is this, the call to submission. Submission exposes the heart, our hearts, to what we really believe about God. And you may not see that at first, but what I want you to really begin to see is it really does. Because here's the question we're ultimately asking in our hearts. Do I really believe that Jesus has the right to tell me what to do? Really? I mean, it really boils down to something as simple as that. Does Jesus Christ have the right to tell me what to do? Whatever it is, does he have the right to tell me what to do? The second question is, do I believe he has the right to place people in authority over me? Especially people I don't agree with or maybe don't even like. Does he have the right to do that? Does Jesus have the right to give you a president that you despise? Does Jesus have the right to, sit, to have you born in a country where all your freedoms are not realized, whatever those freedoms you may think they are? Because do you realize that there are Christians who are not born in free nations? They're born in totalitarian governments. Does Jesus have the right to put people there and redeem them out of darkness and have them and actually expect them to live peaceably among those people? Does he have the right to do that? And I want you to begin to think about what Scripture says. Romans 13.1 says that God establishes the governments of the world. And Paul calls them to submit to those governments. Now remember the government he's calling most people to submit to. A tyrannical government. A government that was burning people at the stake because they said, Jesus, submit to the authorities that God has placed over you. Does Jesus have a right to do that? And see, here's the, here's the amazing thing, men and women. When people were willing to submit in humility... How long did the Roman Empire last? 
It didn't. That's the point. The reality is that submitting people, people who really get it in their minds, Jesus knows what He's doing and Jesus has the right to tell me what to do begin to be people who are different. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time that people will operate differently than with their government. I can assure you this. If the government told me to take my third child when she was born and said you have to put her out on the hillside because you only can have two children, I'd probably have to get killed. They'd probably just have to, to do me in because I couldn't obey that. But as long as they're not calling me to do anything in and of myself that is necessarily sin, I'm called to obey that government. In the same way that people are called to obey all kinds of authorities they're placed under. The real question is, and I'm going to come back and say, does Jesus have the right to tell me what to do? And I think, honestly, men and women, we have a hard time with that concept, especially when it comes up against something that we want or that we're comfortable with, or that makes us happy. What we need to see then throughout Scripture is, is that where submission is, humility is always interwoven with it. A submissive person is always a person who has true humility. You can't have one without the other. They are interwoven together. As I said before, we are never to actively submit to sin. Scripture is pretty clear about that. We're not to willingly and actively participate in, in sin. The other thing I want us to understand about submission is everyone is called to submit to the God-ordained authority that he has placed, over, placed them under. Everyone is. Children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to submit to Christ. And when they fail to do that, they fail their spouses. Leaders are to submit themselves. And when they don't, we know where we go. We go bad places. It shouldn't be surprising. The reality is, is that when people submit themselves to the Lord, they find that He is able and willing to tend to their hearts and care for them. And in fact, what actually I think really begins to happen is they begin to become people who see in a broader range of how God cares for them and not such narrowly defined ways like, do I have the car I want? Does it run the way I'd like it to run all the time, every day? Do I have the job I want? Do I have the employer that I want? Do I have the government do I want? Do I have the elders that I want? Do I have the pastor that I want? Do I have the... See, just keep going down the list. Because Scripture also says in Hebrews 13 that you're supposed to obey the leaders of the church. Ouch. And I realize what that's saying to us all the way across the board. It's saying that no matter who you are, no matter where your lot in life is cast, you are a person that is called to be in submission. You can't get away from it. Every single person in this room is called to submit to someone for some reason. And the, really the question always comes back to, do I believe that God has the right to do this, that He has the right to call me to this, and do I believe that whatever He does, He knows what He's doing? Now, I'm not saying there are some qualifiers in there, but see, the point is, is that if we start talking about qualifiers, we immediately start to justify ourselves to not answer that question. If we don't answer that question, 
then all the qualifiers are nothing but justifiers for me to not obey. What we really need to ask is, am I willing to say, Jesus can ask me anything and that's okay. I'm called to obey. I'm called to follow hard after God. The last thing that I want us to look at is the beauty of Christ's submission. I want you to feel the weight of this because then it makes you see the beauty of Christ. We are called to submit out of fear of Christ. This is the only place in Scripture where we're not called to submit out of fear for God, fear to God or fear to the Lord. It actually names Jesus in person. Out of fear of Christ. And here's the things I want you to think about. If you really think about Jesus and think about this, none of us are able to live perfectly. We never have and we never will in this life live perfectly, flawlessly. And if you really believe who Jesus is, then you have to come to the place where you go, Jesus lived flawlessly, perfectly. Even if his parents spanked him when he was growing up, they were wrong. There is no other child in the world that could say that. Jesus always obeyed, not just externally, but always from the heart, always for the right reason, always with the right motive, always. But see, if we really begin to think about that, I want you to think about this. The perfect second person of the Godhead submitted himself, just like I put on this robe, to put on a human body and take to himself a reasonable spirit and to come to planet earth and submit himself to the commandment you shall honor your father and mother do you see who we're dealing with perfect in every way not practically perfect not Mary Poppins perfect truly perfect with no flaw and no defect. And if we really begin to see that, then we start to realize perfection is possible, but it's only possible for Christ. Which means I'm in a real dilemma if I don't have Christ. But we see it's possible because of Jesus. He shows us the realities of holiness. The other thing is, is to realize that when we really consider what Jesus did, do you understand the power that Christ and that God is exhibiting in raising Jesus from the dead? Do you understand the power that was exerted there when the devil came and tempted Jesus with basically the same three temptations that he tempted Eve with? But the power that was at work in Christ overcame those temptations. See, again, what we start to see is fear is the type of thing, not so much that I fall down and go, oh no, he's going to get me, but just sheer awesomeness of person. Just the sheer weight of glory that exudes from Christ makes me a person who if I really start to see him for who he really is, I can't help but fall down on my knees sometimes with tears running down my face and say, my Lord and my God. 
See, that's really what we have to begin to see if we would understand submission because Christ is the great submitter. He is the one who submitted to the Father. He is the one who went to the cross. He is the one who in Gethsemane said, not my will, but thy will be done. He is that one. And you cannot honestly call yourself a follower who is after Christ and his own heart and not be a submitter. To not like submission. It is the way of the Christian to submit because we are followers of Christ and that's what He did. How can we call ourselves His people if we refuse to do what He does? What He did for us? What He freed us from by submitting? Do you not see the foolishness of it? Do you not see that we are trapped? We are actually trapping ourselves back into the bondage which Satan drew us into in the garden. Fellowship is hindered. Worship is distorted. Gratitude is given to things which can't really give and create. And submission is railed against. And I want you to understand this, men and women. If you really take this seriously you will be ostracized. You'll be ostracized at work. You'll be ostracized at home. Sometimes you'll be ostracized in your neighborhood. Some of your friends will think you're nuts. And the tragedy is, is that some of those people will be people who, just like you, claim the name of Jesus. Because submission just doesn't seem to be all that in a bag of chips. The problem is, is that I'll take Jesus and you can hold the chips. See, that's really what we're saying. I don't need any of that other stuff. I really want Jesus. And that's where we get to submitting to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ. It's where people who know and love and are thankful that Jesus has submitted for us and so we come to the cross and we say, Lord Jesus, it's all yours. When the Lord says, will you, you say, let your will be done. That God would make us those kind of people. I would pray for us. Amen.